Good morning. And before we get started, I'm going to make some announcements. Um, as you all know, the, the book sold out of its first two printings in about five weeks. Amazon, it's been out 12 out of the last 14 days. Uh, my publisher says the next printing comes in on June 13. So tell people to go ahead and just order it. They'll get it eventually. Um, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We ask that your spirit will join us, that our hearts will be pulled toward love and uh, truth, and that we will come to know you better. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing Lesson 12, entitled, Heaven's Best Gift, Zechariah. And the lesson uh, focuses on Zechariah chapter 8, which is about the restoration of Zion. And in verses 1 through 3, it says the following, 8, 1 through 3. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty would be called the holy mountain. What is Zion? There's a song, we're marching to Zion. We hear that term, I mean, we've heard that term our whole life, haven't we? When somebody says, what's Zion? What do you tell them? Jerusalem. Some say, yeah, Jerusalem. Okay, let's let's a little history where that comes from. Historically, Zion uh, initially meant the southernmost mountain. It's actually a mountain, the Mount Zion, in, in southern Jerusalem, on which stood a Jebusite fortress, which was conquered by King David, and where David built his home. Thus, it became known as the city of David. The ridge on which this fortress sit, sat and where David built Zion, there's a ridge, and at the other end of the ridge was another mount called Mount Moriah. And on that mount, which was to the north, so the southern part is, is Zion, the northern part is Moriah, David built his home on the southern mount Zion, on the northern part of Moriah where Solomon built the temple, and Solomon's palace was built on the northern part of this. And so when you read things in scripture, like in Ezekiel, when it says that Lucifer wants to set himself up on the sides of the north, it's a reference to the northern side of Zion where the temple and the palace rested, so we're from God governs and heals. So basically it's saying that Lucifer wants to set himself up in God's temple and replace God in God's temple when it says he wants to set himself up on the sides of the north. Um, so when we read Zechariah, and we read about Zion, the Lord is jealous for Zion, he's going to set him, uh, he's going to return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be called a city of truth. Do you think this is primarily referring to the historic place in the Middle East, or is it referring as an object lesson? And as we've stuck discussing here many, many times, Israel in the Old Testament uh, not only had literal experiences, but they often acted out in, in symbolic ways a larger reality. For instance, the lamb that was slain in their system represented a larger reality, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Do we think that Zion, that is referred to in Scripture, primarily and only refers to a city in the Middle East? Any Scripture to support the, the way my mind is trending? Uh, down, you may say, oh, he's going down a dangerous trail. Uh, any Scripture to support that? How about Hebrews 12, 22 and 23? This is, uh, most people believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, that's what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Now, do we have a, a larger 
understanding of what Zion might be referring to. A city with angels in heaven in which our names are written. Yes? Can I go back to your Mount Moriah? Yeah. Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac mm-hmm. Mount Moriah. Are these the two the same place? Uh, yes, I believe that's correct. So is the Mount Zion spoken in he- in Hebrews that we just read about? Is that talking about a, something in the Middle East or something else? So when we read in Zechariah about his jealous for Zion, Jerusalem's going to have a city of truth, should we be thinking about, when you read those things, should we be thinking about the earth as it is today, restoring some ruins in, in earthly Jerusalem, or is scripture pointing us toward a new heaven and a new earth when all sin, pain, suffering, and death are essentially gone? Or, excuse me, eternally gone. So, what about the idea of God being jealous for Zion? What would that mean? Jealous for Zion. So, he, he has love for them. And jealous means he has a heart passion for their wellness. Right, jealous for, his child. Jealous, jealous for the child, meaning that they have a heart passion for their goodness, yeah. not this. There's a parental care element. Right, so we're not talking that insecure boyfriend jealousy who gets mad when uh, when he takes his girl out to a restaurant and some guy looks her way and he says, "Are you looking at my girl?" <laughs> we're not talking about that kind of jealousy, are we? That comes from fear and insecurity. We're talking about the jealousy for their wellness, for their health, for, for their protection, concern for their, for their eternal good. Tim? Yes? I'm just sitting here looking at the dictionary. I think this is very appropriate. It says solicitous or vigilant in maintaining or guarding something. Okay, I like that. Yes, protecting, guarding. Yeah, that's really good. So is God jealous for the physical location of dirt, brick, and mortars in the Middle East. Is that what he's jealous for? Is God of the same mindset as many people in the Middle East who are jealous for real estate? And aren't they actually extremely jealous for real estate and they're fighting to the death for it? Is that what God means when he says he's jealous for Zion? He's jealous for that particular piece of real estate over there. No. So, it says the, in the first paragraph of the, of the lesson, uh, on, let's make sure I'm in the right spot here, you know, in Sunday's lesson, God's plan was that Jerusalem would again be a safe place in which old people would sit in streets filled with playful boys and girls and so forth and so on. It, God's plan it would be a safe place. When will Jerusalem be a safe place? Well, what will make Jerusalem? How will God achieve safety in Jerusalem? And as you think about that, maybe reverse the question. If you go to a city, what makes a city an unsafe place? Toxins? How about this? I just went through different ideas. Toxins and poisons, Chernobyl. How many wants to go to Chernobyl? It's an unsafe place, right? Okay. Um, Biological hazards or disease, typhoid, yellow fever. How about wild animals? if they were loose in the city. And then what was said first, because you guys are so insightful and wise, um, was, un- was unhealthy and unsafe people. So as you think about the various things that can make a city unsafe, and God is going to make New Jerusalem a safe place, what is the biggest obstacle for making Jerusalem safe? Is it difficult for God 
to cleanse the environment from toxins, destroy disease, or tame wild animals. Is that difficult for him? So those things, no, no big deal. That's easy. Even and the Bible uses those metaphors a lot, like the lion will lay down with the lamb and these types of things. The, the, the animals will be tame. It's not hard. But is there anything that does obstruct and make difficult God's attempt and plan to bring safety to Jerusalem? Yes. What we have in our hearts and minds can obstruct safety. Uh, what we have in our hearts and minds. You were going to say something? Sinful hearts. Sinful hearts. Would it be necessary then, as you say, for God to heal people, to transform them, for Jerusalem to be safe? So as you think about the hearts, what is it that obstructs our hearts from healing? What blocks this? I mean, the gospel supposedly has been preached for 2,000 years. Billions of dollars from all types of backgrounds, from Europe, from America, from all the, have been spent to spread the, the gospel for 2,000 years. Why aren't people being healed? Misunderstanding. Selfish heart. And s- uh, much of it spreading untruth, however well-intentioned. Oh. She said, did everybody hear that? Much of it being spread is untruth. So lies about God obstruct healing truth. Lies, believed, break the circle of love and trust. Right? Yes? And also lies about us, that the enemy of our soul wants us to believe. Lies about us and our condition. Yeah, they're, they're out there. How about lies about God's law? We espouse that. I mean, when we hear about a vengeful God or a God that's going to punish us, then we just reinforce that to people who don't are not believers. So if you believe in that God that's going to punish you, then what is uh, the right thing? What's another word for right? Just. just thing look like. Why do you think we have such a resonance with people wanting our domestic violence study guides? Because if you believe the right thing to do is to inflict punishment on somebody who does wrong, then you've got to punish the people in your family when they don't do right. And spouses get beat. And the husband's beating a spouse and he says, I only do it because I love you. It's twisted. How about lies about the gospel and the plan of salvation? We're going to get into this in a little bit more. All these lies perpetuate fear, don't they? And what is fear? When you're afraid, think of times you've been afraid. Where does fear focus your mental energy? Saving self. Does it enhance your ability to love well when you're afraid? No, it steals your ability to love. And then, of course, the other thing that obstructs is Satan and his agencies, which are continuing to flame up our fears and distort the truth. Does God have a role for you and me, for us to play in helping to make Jerusalem a safe place? Do we have a role? What's our role? What's your role in helping to make Jerusalem safe? Get to know your God with all your heart and share him. Be a good witness. Be a good witness. Yes, Russell. We're supposed to be bricks, building blocks in the city itself. Oh. Yeah. What is the the temple, the new heavenly temple, according to the New Testament, constructed out of? Don't you not? Know ye not that ye are? You're living stones built into a house for the Lord. But a pillar can only be as strong as its foundation. So build a good foundation. So yes, the pillar can only be as strong as a foundation, and the foundation is the chief cornerstone. Yes. 
Kathy. Not to love our lives so much that we would shrink from death. Oh, see, this is the polishing out, the transformation, writing the law on the, on the heart and mind the Hebrew says, or Revelation twelve eleven. she was quoting, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Survival of the fittest drive has been replaced with love God and others more. We don't live in fear. We're not fear-driven. Think about what motivates you to share this message. When you share this message with people, I can tell you our, our, our team, our leadership team, we, our motive is we get joy out of seeing people free. When you present a message of love and truth and you see people who've lived in fear and the transformation that comes over, it brings joy. We present a message of love to, to bring healing. This is our motive. We want to set people free. I can tell you I've observed in people who seem to find it necessary to obstruct and oppose what we're trying to do that they seem to be motivated by fear. Fear of, well, you're going to take people out of the church. Fear of, well, in your message, the, the wicked will not get their just punishment. And they're afraid they won't be punished properly. Uh, it, it's a fear motivation. Look for it. Watch what happens. Ask them, why, why is it you don't want this presented at your church? Well, we're afraid that. Watch them say, we're afraid that it will cause disruption. We're afraid that. We're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. fear. You know, when we love, truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation. So we don't try to control us. We're very happy for people to present their position. Let's explore it together. Let's look at the evidences. Let's weigh it out. Let's test it. Let's use the integrative evidence-based approach, see if all three threads of evidence support it, and we have some confidence there. But when you have a position, and we've all been there, I've been there, and maybe some of you have too, believing something at once in your life that wasn't supported by the evidence... And somebody challenges it, what's the emotion that comes up? Fear. It makes you insecure. You get uncomfortable. You often will get irritable. Because irritation and anger is a band-aid for fear and hurt. Yeah, Martin, you want to say something? Yeah, they have the, the wrong image of God. The wrong image of God, absolutely. Zechariah eight twenty through 23. What is our role in making Jerusalem safe? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will, will yet come. Many people, inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 men, we can say 10 people from all languages and nations will, will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem and his, of his robe and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. What is this message? Is it literal? Is, it, is this referring to people who are genetic descendants of Abraham? Is that what, or, or, or Jacob? Is that what this is referring to? Is this referring to that place built with brick and mortar and, 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 and ruins in, in the Middle East? And says, let's go to Jerusalem? Or is it referring to what we were talking about earlier? The, the Jerusalem built out of the believing peoples of God. What is it referring to? What do you think it means? Ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew because God is with him or her. I mean, think that through. Isn't that kind of incredible? We're not the only one seeking truth. We're not the only one seeking truth, right. And so think about the, the historic purpose of what Israel was, was called to do. They were put at the crossroads of that culture of the, of the world at that time. And they were given all these instructions to symbolically, a little theater, 
A little theater with cool costumes and a cool script, and they were to act out in a drama that that circled every year and it replayed every year. It's like it's like you know you you ever get tired of turning the TV and see Shawshank Redemption? I mean that thing is on all. It's like repeat, repeat. Well, this this thing was every year. This little drama replayed over and over again every year. Just keep replaying. And on a mini level, some of it was replaying every day, every day. You get reruns, 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 reruns all the time. This little drama being acted out. For what purpose? What was the purpose? To lead the people from all the many nations to say, wow, what's this all about? What's this teaching? Let's look higher. Let's open and expand our minds. But what happened instead? Jews became exclusionary. They became exclusionary. And did they become to believe that there was something beneficial about the play? about the drama, about the ritual. The ritual itself was more important than people. How dare you heal on Sabbath, Jesus? What do you think you're doing? How dare your disciples pull some heads of grain on Sabbath? The ritual is more important than the people. The rules are more important than the people. And so when the children ran to sit in Jesus' lap, no, no, no. Children, run in the aisle at church. What's the, what was the, if you see a child run down the aisle in church, what was the historic response? Reverence! Don't run in church. What? This is God's house. This is God's house. Right. No smiles allowed. <laughs> but Jesus said, suffer the children to come into me. He wanted them to come and be in relationship, to, to be in joy in his presence, not to be in fear. Yes? I was thinking like the, the ten people grabbing the hem. It's not just that we're not the only ones seeking truth. It's that when the message is true and is lived out in a person's life, it's magnetic. Isn't it? People are drawn to it. And it, it's not an evangelism series. It's, it's people coming and, and being drawn to that. Like the eternal longing of the human soul is to be free. And when they see that, it's something that they want. And, and I've gotten some emails in the last two weeks from people who, who just have emailed that very thing. I'm free. I'm free. Did you read the blog this week? An email from Australia where a young lady read, got, uh, stumbled upon my book looking for another book, read it, and she said, I'm free. I'm free. She's free of fear, free of insecurity. And that's exactly right. Because why? Where is we find, what does the scripture say we find freedom? In Christ, right? We find freedom in Christ because Christ is the source of truth. That's exactly right. The truth will set you free. That's exactly right. And, but what's the historic, that other way? Why are we free? What are we free from in the other? See, in our view, we're free from the, the encumbrances that, that, that we walk around with, our own fears, our own insecurities, our own weaknesses. We're, fear, we're, we're free of fear of God. We're back in a, a joyful relation. But in that other view, we're, we're free of the punishment. We're free of the punishment. That's what we're free of. And we still, and this is why I asked the question earlier, why is it we aren't, Jerusalem's not a safe place? The gospel's been preached for, for 2,000 years. Why is it people are not being transformed? Because the message that predominates Christianity is not a message of transformation. It's a message of legal pardon. It's a message that you will continue to be 
controlled by your carnal nature. You will continue to live in fear. You'll continue to stumble in sin. You will continue to, to, uh, to um, let survival of the fittest instinct control what you do. But don't worry, all your sins, past, present, and future were put on Christ, punished in him. You've got legal pardon by your name, but there is no victory now, so don't even expect one. Rather than the gospel, and then, and then if somebody suggests a, a victorious life, then, then the devil's there to say, oh, there's a, he's a perfectionist, oh, and, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and your performance, and there's no way you can live. The-. It's not about performance. It's about heart motive. It's about, do you love God, and do you love others more? When it talks about be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is imperfect, read the context. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love others. It's a perfect, perfect motive. That's what it is. Have a motive where you want to do the best, even if you're carrying it out, doesn't work out the best. This is what you get in Romans 7. Boy, the things I want to do, I don't find myself doing, but the things I don't want to do, that's what I sometimes am doing. It's so frustrating. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Praise be to God who set me free. He's going to save me. He's going to set me, heal me fully one day and restore me. But the heart wants to be that way, even though sometimes we're too weak to carry it out. That's a perfect man. Yes. The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? There. You have the Lord. That's how David felt when he faced Goliath. Yes. That's how we could look at life today. So, so this 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 exciting message that we're reading that that ten will come to seek a in Corinthians, Zechariah, Jew because they know the Lord. This is what Paul says in Romans two twenty eight and twenty nine. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man praise, such a man's praise is not from man, but from God. So what makes a person a Jew? Renewal of heart character. Have the spirit take what Christ achieved and reproduce it within us. Yes? By beholding, we become changed. So we need to just behold Jesus constantly. And, and behold Jesus. And which, and which Jesus are we beholding? The one you're talking about. Yeah. But, but it's true. You're, you're being changed either way. Either way. Yes. A Jew is, a, a, by faith, believes in God. There's no image that they have. And if you think about Joseph, his faith saved him in captivity and... His uh, forgiveness is unbelievable. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the suggestion what she was making was I have people that come time, sometimes will come to me and say I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in him, and I'll say Tell me about the Jesus you don't believe in. And as they describe him to me, I say Well, good for you because I don't believe in him either. See, having faith in the wrong Jesus because Jesus is a false Christ are going to go out in the world. Having faith in the false Christ is that going to help you? So you're right. Faith is is integral. But I think she was suggesting we need to make sure we have faith in the right Christ. Yeah. 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 So what do we need to do to be one of these people who that 10 people are going to want to hang on the hem of your garment? Because you, you, you are such a witness for God. You know him so well. They go, that person knows God. I need to follow them. He, they're, going to take me, they're going to take me and introduce me. What do we need to be one of those people? Full of love. Full of love. What else? Can, can you produce that love on your own? Willpower. I'm going to love today. I'm going to love. It's like somebody says, you know, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep that health message even if it kills me. <laughs> <laughs> Say they want to go and have you introduce them. It's, 
it's whenever you get to know someone as a good friend and you get to know them heart to heart that other people come to you and want you to introduce them to that person. Did you hear what she said? We, we need to, when we, what was the key word? No. So John 17, 3, this is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ and now sent. And then this no in scripture is a very intimate word. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave a son. It's not no about. It's actually in experiential knowledge with in relationship, as you were saying. It's heart relationship, yes. When we really grasp God's love for us, that is the gospel. That changes you. Amen. When you really grasp how much God loves you and the way he loves you, you can't stop that from flowing through you. And, and when you get to know him, do you go, does it move past just an emotion to an intelligent comprehension of how God does business, how he runs things, how he operates, the methods he uses, the construction protocols upon which he builds. And then it just takes a whole grander intimacy and, and, and appreciation, doesn't it? Yeah. And so what was it? You'll hear this often from those who hold the other view. They will reduce God from being love to God being loving. I don't disagree that God is loving, but he's also just. Do you understand that every one of us can be loving? But are we love? The Bible doesn't say God is loving. It says God is love. It's a huge difference. And when you reduce it down, you've, you've, you've reduced him down to a level equal to us. No, he's a standard. He's a, he is the, the standard, the barometer, the, 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 the source if you want to say, it's a source for all except evil. It makes the phrase, I am that I am. Yes, exactly. So what do we need? We need to know God. And when we come to know him, do you, does, when you really know him, do, do you trust him? When you really know him. And when you trust him, you open your heart. And when you open your heart, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit comes in. Does the Holy Spirit take a battering ram and ram his way in? Coerce, pressure, threaten, if you don't let me in, I will burn you in hell, says the Holy Spirit. Stand at the door and knock. Stand at the door and knock, and anyone opens, I will come in and stop with him and he with me. Yes. So the Holy Spirit, when you, when you trust and open the heart, the Holy Spirit comes in, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit that regenerates and heals and renews the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit we just read. And then we live lives that love God and others. We, and we live lives that the Scripture calls about called peaceable fruits of righteousness. Instead of living that self-protective mode, we live in a self-sacrificial mode where we actually are giving of ourselves and then we become lights to the world. All right, Monday's lesson. First paragraph, it says, Jesus' triumphal entry consisted of the, uh, of the future king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. In the Bible, rejoicing and shouting for joy, especially is associated with the celebration of God as king. This gentle ruler will bring righteousness and salvation and lasting peace, and his dominion will stretch to the ends of the earth. Triumphal entry. How does Jesus bring triumph? How does he achieve triumph? How does he triumph over evil, wickedness, and sin? How does he do it? With truth and truth and love. This is exactly right. But maybe we should contrast 
the, the, two, the two views. If you hold the imposed law view, everybody know, when I say imposed law, everybody know what I mean? Like a Roman emperor, like speed limits, tax laws, imposed rules uh, put on by government. If you hold that view that God is like a cosmic dictator imposing laws upon his creatures, this is who God is, then how does he triumph? By making bad people pay. Well, what is the problem? One of the things, one of the things we have to know is before we know how the triumph or the victory comes, that the solution, we need to identify the problem. In medicine, they teach you to diagnose before you treat. And so God's triumph is his treatment, right? This is what he's going he's gonna, to, what is the problem that he treats? If you have the imposed law of you, deviations of the law are not in themselves destructive. They're not. Do you speed out here? You go 45 in college, Dale? <laughs> As long as you're not caught, there's no inherent problem with that. Not inherently destructive. And they, and, and they do not, deviations from an imposed law do not bring death. But instead bring condemnation from the ruling authority. You see the difference? The ruling authority has set death as the imposed penalty and is now required to inflict it. In this imposed view. This is how this, this imposed view you see that God has made a, a set of rules, a set of laws. He's imposed them. And he's requiring you to obey them. If you don't obey them, there's nothing inherently wrong with that other than it breaks the rules and it offends the one who put the rules and it's disrespectful to him, but there's nothing inherently wrong to you. But the ruling authority has determined that if you break the imposed penalty is eternal death, so he's got to inflict this upon you. Christ then takes the sinner's place in this view, takes the place on death row. How many have seen those stories and metaphors? used, takes the place on death row, and pays the legal penalty, earning the right of pardon from his father. I was executed in the sinner's place, but I'm innocent, so I can now give my innocent life and pardon those who are not innocent and deserve death. So he offers legal payment to humans. Interesting, he didn't do this for angels. Think that through. Hmm. This view has really got some major holes in it. Um, Those who accept it get pardoned. Those who don't accept the payment find God will use divine power to torture and kill, thus sending the message throughout the universe that God has the right to kill you if you don't accept the payment. So in the future, sin never rises again because if it does, God just kills the rebellious. Thus fear of God's punishment prevents sin from rising again in this view. That's what it does, fear of punishment. And so we have a universe where beings live in eternal fear. Wait, there's a problem here. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were perfect love, cast out all. Well, what's the problem here then? Natural law view, sin is a deviation from God's design, how he built things to operate. He built things to run in harmony with his own nature. That's how life is constructed. Humans actually... Uh, deviated from that design and live in a terminal state, a state that is inherently um, inherently destructive and results in death unless the designer intervenes to fix what's wrong. So God sent Christ to take our iniquity, our sinfulness, our terminal state upon himself to cure it according to God's purpose. All who are won back to trust in God by the truth Jesus revealed open their hearts, experience via the Holy Spirit the reproduction of Christ-like characters. No longer I that live, but Christ lives where? 
we become partakers of what? The divine nature. I mean, if you look at all the metaphors of Scripture. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. Circumcision is the heart by the Spirit. We get the mind of Christ. The law gets written on the heart and mind. All the metaphors, and we go on and on, are about regeneration, renewal, recreation, rebuilding. Uh, it is transformational in you now. We are new creatures. New we are creatures. Old creatures that were renovated. We are new creatures. With new motives. Yes, new desires, exactly. Those who refuse to trust God in this view die of their terminal condition, not as an infliction from God. The saved see and comprehend in eternity future, the saved see and comprehend God did everything to save those who were lost and realize that those lost died from their condition, not from an infliction from God. Love and trust for God and love for his methods increase and the universe is eternally safe because it is inhabited only by individuals who love God and others more than self. And there is no fear of God in this eternity future. Yes? Um, those that are breaking the natural law of God, they will, as you just said, they will, and I agree with that, they will die as the result. It's going to be like a natural consequence that happened. It's not God inflicting pain on them and then they die. But what, what will happen with the, with the devil and with evil angels? They die of the natural results of their choices as well. Same thing, is my understanding. What happened at the third coming of Christ with the devil and with his... Well, we aren't given a play-by-play, but reading in through the scriptures, if you read Revelation and other places, it, the, 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 the sequence of events seem to go something like this. Now, when Christ comes in glory, and, uh, and you see this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the dead in Christ rise first. Those uh, which are alive and righteous are caught up together with him in the air. Uh, Re- Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20 says this is the first resurrection, that the dead, uh, the, the wicked dead don't live again until the thousand years are over. So there's a thousand year period where the wicked dead are not alive on the earth. Satan is on the earth with his angels for a thousand years in this, uh, this abyss, this uh, place of, of utter chaos. Because why, and, and why is it turned back to utter chaos? Here, well, how how is the earth described in Genesis one one? Void and and what's and what's the abyss in Revelation twenty? It's a void place. Why? Because God's presence is completely. He's the he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the builder. And so when God removes His sustaining presence, it goes back to its chaotic form. The Lucifer or Satan and his angels are left here to contemplate. It says they were not loosed from their pit for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. The wicked are raised, and it says, if you read the text in Scripture, a couple of things. One, that there's a period of time that goes by where they, imp- where, the, where, they, where they build implements of war. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open. Open. Thousand years, uh, I mean, not for a thousand years, but when New Jerusalem, and, and then this period of time goes by, and gates are open. Only when they march in mass on the city is the voice of Christ heard, close the gates. What's the implication of all this? They still have a chance. Well, you could say they still have a chance in the same way you could say um, somebody who has uh, tied uh, uh, 1,000-pound weights on their legs uh, and, 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 and jumped into the ocean still has a chance. I mean, you could say it like that. I mean, the decision is still theirs. Yeah, the, the, they still ha- they, their freedom of choice has not been taken away. 
Okay, so that's exactly right. God has not eliminated the freedom of choice, and that is what is, is being demonstrated, that the gates are open, and their freedom to choose is still there, but they don't, their choices have been taken away by their own lifelong habit patterns, which have destroyed within them the capacity to understand, comprehend truth and love, and thus they are so deluded and so settled into the lies about God that even with the gates open, they will not come in. And then, at one point, God reveals himself fully in his life-giving glory, and rivers of fire come out before him, and this is the fires of truth and love that consume all that's out of harmony, and the wicked and the angels die. Yes? I think it's important for us to understand why the gates are open, because uh, there will be some who are on the walls of the city, who have spent a thousand years in heaven boring over record books of our loved ones who are not with us, and we will still have questions in our mind about if only they could see this, if only they could be here, they would understand. And that, I think that's part of it. But I think, and I agree with that. But I want to add to that and say, and say it's bigger. The bigger part is that God is demonstrating that the reason they're out of the city is their choice, not His. He did not sit in judgment and and, and in, our, in a judicial courtroom and look over the records and say legally you are condemned and you must stay outside. That's not why they're out. They're outside the city by their very own condition and their very own choice. They don't want to be in the city, and this is what's demonstrated by it being open. So uh, both sides are being demonstrated. But the bigger one is God has to handle it in such a way that when the wicked finally die, your loved one, if they're on the outside, finally die, you can go up to Jesus on the walls of New Jerusalem, put your arm around him and say, it's okay, there's nothing more you could have done. If, if, if that is not resolved, then doubt and uncertainty remains in our ability to trust God. And that's part of the reason why this happens. But this is really way off topic. Yes. What's that text in Revelation about the gates being open? It's in, I think it's in chapter 21. Yes. They're in that period of time where they have built weapons to possibly destroy this magnificent city that they think they could destroy it. Could it not be most consistent with your idea about God? If they destroyed themselves at the end. I think that's very possible too. And I think there's actually biblical uh, support for the idea that they become so chaotic and so wild, they turn on themselves like the Assyrians did, and they, t- and they tear each other up and they attack each other. And it, scripture actually says in Isaiah 14, I believe, that they will turn on Satan and attack him and his angels as well. So I think that's right. Yeah, good point. All right, let's, let's go on with the triumph. How does he get triumph? Well, it says in here that some were celebrating and wanting, it says, when Jesus triumphantly rode the donkey into Jerusalem only days before his death, a great number of people cheered his coming. Some rejoiced, hoping that Christ would overthrow Roman power and establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem. But instead of allowing himself to be Israel's king, Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the grave. There is no question that he disappointed many of his followers, those who sought a militaristic leader. Are some Christians today falling in the same trap of longing for Christ to come back as a militaristic leader? So think what they're saying. Do some Christians teach that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, despite horrible abuse and mistreatment, loved perfectly, went to heaven with a character of perfect love, but after going to heaven, has over the last 2,000 years had a change of heart, and doesn't come back the gentle, loving Jesus, but instead an angry, wrathful, Attila the Han type being coming to destroy and kill. Think it through. This is what they're teaching. He's not coming back, gentle Jesus who loves. He's coming back, wrathful Jesus, with a sword and a rod of iron to punish and destroy. Where'd gentle Jesus go? Well, he had more time with his father, evidently. (laughs) 
You know, hopefully it makes you sick for me to say these things. But this is what's being presented, and it is sickening. Zechariah 9.10, he shall speak peace to the nations. Yeah, peace to the nations. They were expecting him to come in the same manner. Um, When Jesus comes back, will he have a character of perfect love? Will his perfect love stop and prevent the wicked from suffering terribly? No, it won't. I've actually recently been accused of a teaching, teaching universalism because I teach that God doesn't have to inflict death, that God continues to love everyone. Thus, those people who hold this imposed law view, if you actually operate here and you can't get your mind to a design protocol, then if you operate here and, and, and you say, well, he doesn't have to, the judge does not have to inflict punishment, then in their mind there is no punishment. So then if there's no punishment, then everyone must be saved. I don't teach that at all. I don't teach, sadly, some will die terribly in the end. Just as patients who refuse rehabilitation and continue to drink a fifth of vodka every day die terribly. But the patient slash sinner doesn't die at the hand of the doctor or God. They die from their unhealed condition. Tuesday's lesson, Zechariah 12, 10, says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for his firstborn son. Is this applicable only to the tribe of Judah, David's descendants? I will, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So only the genetic descendants of Judah, the genetic descendants of Abraham, that this is applicable to. Or is it applicable to all those we read earlier who have been renewed, like Abraham was renewed in faith, to have a heart for God and be reunited with him? Zechariah 13, 1 and 2. On the, that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will remember, will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. Again, is this only to literal genetic descendants, that he is a fountain that cleanses from sin and impurity, when it says, um, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Or is this, again, as we've talked about, this is metaphorical, this is an object lesson, that Jerusalem is really made up of all those who have come back into that saving relationship with Christ. And, And Christ is the fountain of healing that cleanses all who trust him from sin. Do you notice... As you read this passage, this fountain of healing, as it says, cleansing from, uh, from impurity and sin. Does that sound like legal pardon or does that sound like transformation? Notice, it's Old Testament talking about transformation. Cleansing from sin and impurity, not pardoning, not payments. It's all through the scripture. Zechariah 13.6, if someone asks him, Where are, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Isn't that chilling? Do you think these chills? The implications are staggering in heaven. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, walking on the streets of gold, by the river of life, by the tree of life. Someone walks up to Jesus and said, hey, what are those marks on your hands? Where'd you get those? What's the implication? There will be people in heaven who haven't heard the gospel story. 
These are the marks. These are the wounds I got at the house of my friends. I went to my people. This is what they did to me. Have any of you gotten wounds at the house of your friends? Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad? Wednesday's lesson, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. And then in the next paragraph, in the paragraph it says, in Zechariah thirteen seven through 9, the prophet is shown a scene in which the sword of the Lord's judgment goes out against the good shepherd. On a previous occasion, the prophet saw the sword being raised against the worthless shepherd. But here, in this passage, the good shepherd is struck and the flock becomes scattered. His death results in a great trial and testing of God's people, during which some perish it. All the faithful are refined. Um, what does it mean the Lord's judgment goes out against the good shepherd? This is what the lesson interprets. It's not what it says, does it? And why do you think the passage which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. <clears throat> it doesn't say the sword is being wielded by the Lord, does it? It doesn't say that at all. Why is it that they're, they're interpreting it this way? Which, which law model do you think they're coming from? The ruling authority must... In, Pose this punishment upon him. So are they suggesting God inflicted something on Jesus? That God acted like human judge and imposed punishment on Jesus? If you view it the natural law way, then what do you understand God's judgment to be? God's judgment of Jesus to be. What is, how does he judge Jesus? If you look at the Natural law view. Unrighteous. He certainly judges him righteous, but there's a... Gave him up to his own choices. Gave him up to his own choices because what was the judgment? It was the only means. I judge that it's the only path, means, way that I, God, can achieve my goal. And what is my goal? To make sure sin gets punished. Is that his goal? No, my goal to save mankind. To eliminate sin, to rid sin from human beings, to cleanse them, to restore them. This is my judgment that only through this path is it possible to cleanse human beings from sin and restore them to their original estate in perfection with God. And through Christ Jesus, uh, he took upon himself our fallen condition and cleansed, restored. In Jesus Christ, we have a, a humanity, a humanity that is perfect. A humanity that never sinned. A human nature as God originally designed in Adam to be. This is what Jesus achieved for humanity. No other human being. Jesus did this. And, and, and the Holy Spirit takes what Jesus achieves and reproduces it in us. He, he re, as, as, we, as we quoted earlier, we become partaker of the divine nature. Christ lives in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. But if you have that other view... It wasn't God's judgment that this was the means. In the same way, I, uh, metaphorically... 
a renal cancer patient, a renal failure patient, the doctor judges that, or maybe you make the judgment that you donate a kidney to your family member. Why did you have to donate the kidney? Your judgment was this was the only way to save them. The necessity of the condition required the donation. The necessity of our condition required Christ's mission on the cross. Not the Father's need. But this other view, it was the Father's need. The Father needed blood. The Father needed appeasement. The Father needed payment. The Father needed to, to, be, to be reconditioned into a gentle, loving being. You think I'm making this up? This is out of Christianity Today, a call to evangelical unity in uh, June 14, 1999. Uh, it says, We affirm that the atonement of Christ, by which in his obedience he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on, behalf, on our behalf according to God's eternal plan is an essential element of the gospel. We wonder why the Lord hasn't come. Lives aren't being transformed. This is from the foundations of Pentecostal theology. The word propitiation properly signifies the turning away of wrath, the turning away of wrath by a sacrifice. Thus it signifies appeasement. The consistent Bible view is that the sin of man has incurred the wrath of God. That wrath is averted only by Christ's atoning offering. From this standpoint, his saving work is properly called propitiation. What are they describing? He's reconditioning the Father. Uh, you think? Let's go to this one. This is out of a book called the, the Cross of Christ by George Knight. Some of you might have heard of it. Paul always speaks of the people being this. I just, I just, it's, it's incomprehensible after you read the first sentence here. Listen to what he acknowledges in the first sentence, because it's absolutely correct. And he gives the Bible references of 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 5, and 1 Colossians 1. He gives all the references for this statement, which is true. Paul always speaks of the people being reconciled to God. He never refers to God being reconciled to us. Amen. Amen. That's exactly right. Next, next words. In spite of that fact. What does that usually mean is going to follow? <laughs> that even though this is the way it is, we're going to throw it all out. Now listen to this. In spite of that fact, however, we should recognize that sin affects both sides, or affected both sides. Humanity's rebellion and sense of guilt alienated it from God while God was separated from humankind by... Notice what separates God from us. By his necessary hatred of and judgment on sin, his wrath. Christ's sacrificial death propitiate, uh, propitiation removed the barrier to reconciliation from God's side. Do you understand what this just said? Yes. What, what's separating us from God is not our sinfulness. It's not our distrust of him. It's not our wickedness. It's not our selfishness. It's not our, our hate for him or his methods. No, no. According to this, uh, this view, it, it isn't sin. It's God's hatred and judgment. Hatred in God's heart separates us. God's hostile attitude that separates us from him. And thus they teach that the barrier to our relationship was removed from God's side. Do you realize how horrible and even satanic this view is? Why have people not experienced transformation? Why has, when, when Jesus said, why has the Lord not come? When the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. This, what I just read, is not the gospel of the kingdom. This is pagan. 
This misrepresents God. It makes God out to be Baal who has to have the sacrifice to appease and pay him. So something can be done to assuage him. This is not biblical. Yes. And if that were true, God could not have come in the person of Jesus Christ to this earth to save humankind because he couldn't have stood being that close to them, hanging out with the worst of us. And he was way too mad to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. There is nothing wrong with God. He doesn't need to be fixed. There's something wrong with humankind. We need to be fixed. This is out of a book called The Seventh-day Adventist 27 Fundamental Beliefs. Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God because this sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man. So far, if you stop right there, that's right. It does take away. And the barriers are sinfulness, our carnal nature, the lies that are told that keep us from knowing him. It did take away all that. So that's true. But, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on. Took away the barrier between God and sinful man in that. Oh, now we're going to define what that is. In that, Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. So what's the barrier in this view? God's wrath. His anger, his attitude, that's what stops us. We could be close to him. If, what, if he just wasn't so mad all the time, we could get close to him. Yes, Kathy. The question about that to me is what it implies about our relationships. We would never change our relationship to a child that we loved with all our heart, no matter what they did. The relationship would always be intact. We would be sad, we would be frustrated, we would be hurt by some of their choices, but... We could never stop loving our children in a good, healthy parent-child relationship. It makes God less than we are. Yeah, it, yeah, but, but if the child went into rebellion, you could lose the relationship, but not your love and your attitude. But the relationship could be broken by the child's rebellion. Right, yeah. but not yeah. from your side. Not from your side, exactly. So here's another one, uh, next page of the same book. For a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute, execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. What did they just say? Why did Christ die on the cross in this view? Remember, if you have an imposed law view, the ruling authority must impose, must execute, must put you to death. And so in this view, which is what they hold to, which is, which is pagan, God killed his son at the cross. God executed him. For justice sake. And to take away his wrath. Ah, oh, blood. And so think this through, guys. God, we're sinful, and God is mad, and he's angry and wrathful at us. I know what we can do to get him to be kind and loving to us. When he sends his son, we'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood. Then he'll be happy. Wait. That doesn't quite just seem to work out, does it? Yes, Tim. I think it would be fair to say in the imposed law view that uh, they don't view as God is love, but rather God is wrath. Well, they, they, they give verbal assent to God as love, but they always, always misunderstand his love, and they say, God is not only loving, he's also but, just. But it always gives out to wrath in the end, mm-hmm. in their view. Well, let me give you scripture to counter what I just read. God is brilliant. He knows the future. He prophesied. He prophesied 
exactly what, what we're dealing with today would happen. Listen to this prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant prophecy. Listen to what it says. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He wasn't stricken by God. He said he was going to take up our condition, our infirmities, our iniquities, our terminal state. He took it upon himself to go through that in order to heal and restore, to become the remedy for sin. But we would misunderstand and we would consider God did this to him and God struck him down and God executed him. Wow. That's exactly what's being taught in Christianity. Is any wonder the Lord hasn't come? This is the final message. The message that is to lighten the world for Christ's return, the truth about God's character of love. And we've got to, 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 to take this out there. There's minds. I can tell you, when I talk to, to audiences, as long as they haven't gone to seminary, I, I don't, I, I don't, I mean that seriously. People that go to seminary and spend four years getting this stuff just indoctrinated into them, it, it closes down pathways. They have a hard time comprehending and seeing. They love this perspective. It frees hearts and minds. Doesn't that come right out of paganism? Doesn't it come right out of paganism? Absolutely. Um, if, you, if you study Baal in the Old Testament, Baal in the Old Testament, Baal, is actually, there's a Hebrew word, Baal, uh, that refers to husband and protector. And in, old, in Israel, they used to have cities named Baal Peor, Baal Pereth, which, which were referring to Yahweh. And they would actually call Yahweh Baal, husband, protector of Israel. But there was a Mesopotamian god named Baal with a capital B, which, now here's the, here's the characteristics of Baal. Baal was the son of El, E-L, as in El Shaddai, Elohim, the son of El. Um, Baal was the a god of weather. He brought life. He brought the rain. He brought, he brought the crops each year. He fought against Mot, the god of death. He fought against the great serpent, Leviathan. In his battle against Mot, the death god, Baal dies and rises again from his death to bring life to the land. Now, what's wrong with worshiping a God who's the son of El, who is the creator, who brings life, who fights the great serpent, who fights against death, who dies for us and rises again to bring us life? What's wrong with that God? Well, if you actually look, there was one other element that was true to Baal worship, and that was Baal required appeasement. Their sacrifices were given to appease his anger and wrath, and that's what made Baal worship false. And Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder, god of weather, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse, and Jesus Christ to the Christians in the Dark Ages. And it's time to set the world free of this distorted view and show Jesus Christ as he really is, and the Father as he really is. Just a comment here and here. Yes, and then we're close. Is it a misconception that in the Old Testament God required sacrifice? And if not, why did he? Yes, it is. It's a misconception that sacrifice was required. Do we have evidence in Scripture that there were people who were saved without ever giving sacrifice in the Old Testament? Nebuchadnezzar, Naaman, there's two. Um, there, there are others. But they never gave sacrifice as far as we know, and yet they... As far as we can tell, they're going to have salvation. So what was the purpose of the sacrifice? It, when Paul makes it clear in Romans, or excuse me, in Hebrews, that there is no benefit in sacrificing animals. No, in fact, Micah, chapter 6, 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come with a, with a, a, a thousand rams, with rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn son? No, he's shown you what, what is good. To love mercy, 
to act justly and to walk humbly with your God. This was always true. So the Old Testament system, though, was a theater, a little, a little um, play or drama to act out in, in behavior the plan of salvation and teach the natural results of what sin does. And we've, we've talked in here before, I've got to finish your question. We've talked in here before about God's design protocols for life, the, the, the circle of giving, how he built things to run. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, plants give back oxygen to you, the law of love and action. Okay, this is a circle that never ends. Well, the Old Testament system, a sinner would, would confess sin on the head of the animal. Then the sinner, not the priest, would cut the circulation. Okay, there's a reason the blood circles. It just never stops flowing and brings life, but sin severs the circle of life. And it's just an object lesson that teaches when you separate from God's law of love, you sever yourself from the the, the flow of life that that he built his universe to operate on, and it results in death. And so this was an object lesson. And then the lamb represented Christ who would take that condition upon himself. And in taking that condition upon himself, his life was pure and holy. And I, I wish that was, boy, you really could send me down a trail now. His life is pure and holy. The blood is in the life, right? Everything in the Old Testament that the blood of the sacrificial animal touched became holy. And so the blood is taken into the temple, cleansing the temple. Don't you not? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood. You have no part with me. We're to ingest Christ's life. It cleanses and restores us. But there's this other view that says when the blood goes in, it contaminates the temple. It defiles it with sin. And now there needs to be an investigation where sin is taken out. During this t- it's not in scripture. It's under this view. Okay, yes, then we got to go. Could you just clarify what killed Jesus on the cross? Oh, what killed Jesus on the cross? Separation from God. No one can take my life. I believe it was a combination of various factors all working together. But Jesus said, no one can take my life. I, I surrender it freely. That didn't mean he committed suicide. He did not take a poison pill. So he didn't kill himself, but he, 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 he did not use his power to stop death from taking him. So there's a difference between surrendering to it and killing yourself. He didn't commit suicide, but he didn't stop it. And that was integral to his over, overcoming and revealing the truth about God, how to use power. Selfishness. He wouldn't act selfishly to save self. Instead, he acted in perfect love. But what killed him was a combination, in my view, of the physical beating and, and torture that he was upon. Um, in the book, Desire of Ages, it says that Satan revealed himself as a murderer at the cross. Amen. And Satan and evil and the, and the evil mob attacked and destroyed him. And the the sense of heartbrokenness and separation as his father's presence was close by but hidden. So Christ didn't emotionally feel his father's presence and that broke his heart, but his father was close by with him. And thus Christ had faith into your hands, I surrender my spirit. Even though I don't feel you, I know you. And, Beings in the universe that may have thought that they knew Satan back when Lucifer, they may have thought he really isn't that bad. Right. This is the demonstration of really what that selfishness would go so far as to kill. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was all so, so much deep. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for your incredible goodness, your, your perfect love, the way you've created things to operate. The fact that Jesus loved us so much and you loved us so much that together is the triune God that, that Jesus came in order to, to reveal truth of who you are, to dispel and disabuse of this, this distorted view, to 
take our condition, overcome, heal, restore, write the law of love back in the human being and, and, and then make that available to us through the work of your spirit. Lord, we ask that your spirit will come and, and transform us, freeing us from fear. Give us hearts of love to love you and love others and make us effective lights. Let us be one of those that the 10 will come and grab our hems that, that they, they want to know you because they see that, that the knowledge of the Lord has been restored in our hearts as we come back into a knowledge of you. We pray that you will come soon and we pray you bless this ministry and all those here who are eager to share this with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.